Good morning, everyone. It is wonderful to see you here today at Vista. If we haven't met before, my name is Austin. I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors. And if you're new here, here for the first time, first time in a long time, we are so glad to have you. We hope that you feel loved, welcomed, and wanted it, that you make yourself at home here at Vista. So today marks the beginning of what's traditionally been known as, don't worry about the sound, it'll make sense in a second. Um, Today marks the beginning of what's traditionally been known as Holy Week, this last week of Jesus' life where we journey with him over the course of the last week of his life. Well, kind of the last week of his life, right? I don't want to give the ending away, but it's very, very good, and you'll want to make sure that you're here on Easter. Uh, And so in this last week of Jesus' life, we always begin the Sunday before Easter with the exact same story, the story of Jesus' final entry into Jerusalem. And so if you have your Bibles, grab them. We'll be in Matthew 21. While we're turning to Matthew 21, though, I would like to brag on uh, Nick Followell and Sarah Hammond, our community pastors, for the work they did on the conflict resolution guide that they rolled out last week. Didn't they do a great job with that? Man. Uh, that's a resource that'll be a huge blessing to our church for years and years and years to come. And I just could not be more thankful for them and the work they put into that guide. So Matthew 21, we'll be in Matthew for our three weeks of uh, Easter, Palm Sunday, today, Easter Sunday, next Sunday, and then Sunday after Easter. All right, we're going to read verses 1 through 17. Now, when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Now, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now the disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, brought the donkey and the colt, laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats out in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees. John tells us they were palm branches in his gospel, spreading them in the road. Now the crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred. The city was shaken. And people were saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, well, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. We're going to hit pause here because I have enlisted the help of a few of my very little friends this morning to help us bring this text to life. And so if y'all would, give a round of applause to some of our Vista kids as they come through and bring this text to life for us.
So it was something like that, okay? Something like that. Pick it up now in verse 12. So Jesus then entered the temple... And he drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he was shouting out, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And then the blind and the lame came to Jesus in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that Jesus had done and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. And they said to Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said, yep. Have you never heard? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you've prepared praise for yourself. And he left them and went out to the city, to Bethany, and he spent the night there. Matthew 21, verses 1 through 17. So Jesus has been traveling toward Jerusalem for what everybody senses is a a pretty big showdown. And right before he enters in, he pauses on this little ridge just to the east of the city, a ridge that's known as the Mount of Olives. I have a couple pictures of it to put yourself there. This is a modern picture of what the Mount of Olives looked like. You can see we put up some nice Airbnbs there on the Mount of Olives. (laughs) Looks great. Here's a picture, though, rendering, not a picture, obviously, of what it would have looked like more in Jesus' time. So you see you got the Mount of Olives there to the top right of the picture. It's specifically looking right in on the eastern part of the city, which is where the temple was, right? So Jesus on the Mount of Olives. He's looking down at the temple there to the east of the city. The Mount of Olives is a very important place in the Jewish imagination because a number of very, very big prophecies had been made about the Mount of Olives. The biggest one had come from Zechariah hundreds of years before in which Zechariah had said that the Mount of Olives would be this site for an Armageddon of sorts, this apocalyptic cataclysmic event in battle wherein God would finally, you know, rouse himself and wage war on Israel's enemies on Israel's behalf and finally establish his kingship over all the earth. We'll read it. Zechariah 14 verses 3 through 9. It says, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day, his feet will stand where? On the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. So that half of the mountain will move toward the north, the other half toward the south. You will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord, my God, will come and all the holy ones with him, right? God and his army. In that day, there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle for it will be a unique day, which is known to the Lord. Neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time, there's going to be light. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. Half of them towards the eastern sea, the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one in his name, the only one. That is Zechariah 14. And so now we can, we can feel the moment just a little bit better, can't we? Right. This prophecy, Zechariah's prophecy, which they all would have known, it lingers thick in the air as Jesus' feet stand where? On the Mount of Olives. Surely Jesus is coming to Jerusalem to, you know, wage war on Israel's enemies, to conquer the Romans, to finally establish his kingship over all the earth. And then Jesus just ramps up the expectations even more. He takes them from a 10 to an 11 when he tells two of his disciples to go and get him a donkey, which he's then going to ride into Jerusalem. 
Because Zechariah also prophesied about this. This is Zechariah 9 verse 9. Behold, your king is coming to you, Israel. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. And so Jesus is making his intentions very, very clear here. He's saying, look, I am the king, just like Zechariah said, and I'm coming to Jerusalem to take the throne, right? I am the king. We all know this. In the, get the real king up there for me. if you. There we go. Okay, that's better. That's much better. Now we... Claps for MJ. That's great. Claps for MJ. All right, so this is what's going down. Um, the anticipation just builds from this point, okay? Jesus comes down from the Mount of Olives, riding on this donkey into Jerusalem, this massive crowd starts to build and we're told that they're throwing their coats out on the road in front of them then they're throwing palm branches out in front of him and then at this point it seems like all the people just they stop just cheering for Jesus and they just like join the entrance parade (laughs) and everybody's shouting out these shouts going Hosanna to the son of David blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and this comes from Psalm 118 which was a psalm likely used in this yearly enthronement ceremony in which Israel would celebrate their king, right? So they're doing this psalm as Jesus marches into Jerusalem. And so again, everybody knows what's going down. Jesus has made his intentions very clear. And the crowd is smoking what he's selling. And the city is so hyped up that we're told in verse 10 that the city is literally shaking. The word that Matthew uses here is the Greek word sio. It's the same word that he uses in Matthew 27, 51 to describe the earthquake that rips across Jerusalem the moment Jesus dies. And I love how vivid this is, right? Matthew's like, listen up. The city is literally shaking. People cannot wait for what happens next. Everybody's hyped up. And so what happens next? Jesus marches directly into the temple. Now, most of us probably have some general sense that the temple was, you know, it's important. It's an important place. A sacred place like a, a chapel, a church's sanctuary, Miller's. <laughs> now do you get it? Now, now you get it. Yeah. So we kind of get it, but we're kind of not capable of getting it because modern people like us, we, we don't have the same sense of sacred space that ancient people had. They were literally afraid to go some places because they thought they would just die because it was a holy place and they were unholy people. So we kind of get it, but it's kind of difficult for us to, to get it. And so uh, for an ancient Jew, the temple, it was the most important, powerful, and sacred place on the planet. It, it was like the White House plus St. Peter's Basilica plus Miller's all rolled in to one place. The political, social, and religious energy of the entire nation and as Israel believed the entire world was bound up and predicated upon what happened in this place, upon what happens in the temple. And so the crowds are shouting, right? And the city is rocking. And Jesus marches into the most important, powerful, and sacred place on the planet. And what does Jesus do? He wrecks it. He acts like a wild man. He walks in there, he's flipping over tables. He's kicking people's butts. John tells us he makes a whip and he's chasing people out of there. Can you imagine if you've been in there that day? You're just this nice, professional, proper little religious person selling your animals for sacrifice. And you start to hear this slow, thundering sound, you know, reverberating through Jerusalem. And then the ground beneath your feet starts to shake. Then all of a sudden, this wild man comes storming into the temple with all these people. He's looking crazy. You know, no, he looks at you and he runs over to you. He flips your table over. He kicks you in the butt. He chases you out with a whip. Can you imagine telling that story to your kids years later? I was there the day Jesus stormed the temple. God himself kicked me in the butt. It was right here. This cheek, I've never washed it. Unbelievable. 
He acts like a wild man. He's chasing everybody out. He's shouting all these loose citations from Isaiah and Jeremiah saying, hey, the temple's meant to be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of bandits. And then once he is chased, all of the important religious people out of the temple. Did you notice who comes walking into the temple? You pick up on that? First off, we're told in verse 14 that the blind and the lame come to Jesus in the temple and he heals them. It's the first thing that happens. There was this long-standing tradition in Israel in which allegedly abnormal people were excluded from the life of the community because their abnormalities allegedly marked them out as being especially sinful, impure, and not holy. And so, uh, you know, Leviticus 21.18, for example, specifically said that the blind and lame were not allowed to serve as priests. And up until the time of Jesus, we have ancient Jewish documents that claim the blind and lame would not have a place in the kingdom of God. So it shouldn't be particularly surprising that they were excluded from the life of the temple. And yet here's Jesus, right, kicking out all the normal and important people. It's the first thing Jesus does and making room for all the abnormal and unimportant people. Then I really like this next part of the story. The chief priests and the scribes, they've been chased out of the temple by Jesus. And we're told that they finally muster up the courage to peek back inside and see what's going on. And I get it. These men have just been chased out of the temple with a whip by another grown man. Have you ever been chased by another grown man with a whip? Very tough to look him in the eyes after that, I would assume, right? They're very afraid about what has just gone on, but they finally gather up the courage. They peek there, you know, inside the temple to see what's going on. And they are appalled by what they see. It's gross. It's awful. It's a moral calamity. There are all these blind and lame people in there and Jesus is healing them. And then even worse, there are a bunch of children running around in the temple playing and laughing and having fun. It's awful. You got to understand, ancient people did not share our sentimentality about children. They didn't think children were just the cutest and the best. They didn't act like their children's butler. Any else? You feel like you're the butler in your household? That's all I am. Fisher family butler. That's who I am. They didn't act like that with their kids. No, they thought kids were, you know, aspiring humans, were very annoying, should be neither seen nor heard, especially in very sacred, important places like the temple. And yet here's Jesus kicking out all the important adults, welcoming in all the children, and then whipping them up into a toddler mosh pit while he's handing out donuts, candy. He's getting them all hyped. This is what Jesus does. It reminds me of a few years ago, this Vista kid's uh, volunteer comes up to me after a service, and I could tell he's very apprehensive about what he was about to tell me. So I braced myself because when it comes to my children, I tend to believe the worst. <laughs> so with deep trepidation in his voice, he says to me, Austin, uh, why it was, he was a lot today. And I said, oh, no, it doesn't sound like him. Um, <laughs> was he disrespectful? He said, oh, no, 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 he wasn't. I said, well, that's good because if he was disrespectful, that's probably his mom's fault. And so you'll need to find her. He says, no, no, no. He wasn't disrespectful. He was just a lot, like so happy and so much energy all morning long. I said, oh, well, you know what it sounds like you did to my son today? Well, his eyes got big. I said, it sounds like you taught my son the gospel today. Because one of the surest signs that the gospel has been heard and received and embodied is the sound of the laughter of children. 
Because, y'all, when the gospel is heard and received and embodied, when kids hear that, kids get rowdy, don't they? Because they know that they have heard some very good news. They're not like us stiff, prudish adults, right? We hear the gospel. Hey, Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. God's joyful justice is impinging upon creation. You can be a part of it now and forevermore. We hear that and we do what? <sighs> I'm hungry. He said Miller's. Do you want to go get Miller's after service? <laughs> the kids can teach us a lesson. I have to take a moment to brag on our Vista Kids ministry for just a second. Ross, Katie, Kelsey, the hundreds of volunteers who make Vista Kids possible because if you go down to the Vista Kids wing on any Sunday morning or Wednesday night, the primary sound you're going to hear is what? Two things, the crying of adults and (laughs) the laughter of children. Because when the gospel is proclaimed and received and embodied, the primary sound you hear is the sound of the laughter of children. So Jesus, he marches in from the Mount of Olives. He starts a parade in the streets. He causes an earthquake in the city. He instigates a riot in the temple. And then he leaves from there and he goes and he takes a nap. That's what John says. He goes to Bethany and he goes to sleep. Can you imagine being one of those people who were there that day? You get swept up in those events. I don't know how long it was. Two hours, three hours, man. You're marching in with Jesus. You become a part of the parade. You're watching him just chasing everybody out of the temple. It's unbelievable. And then he just goes home and takes a nap. And you're waiting. You're like, all right, what's he going to do next? Oh, cool. He's, he's literally just going to nap. That is all that he's going to do. You're probably feeling a little bit what at this point? What's the word? You're probably a little bit disappointed. That's the word that comes to my mind. Because Jesus, he did show up and he did some cool stuff. But he didn't really do any of the important stuff that you were expecting him to do. He didn't conquer all your enemies. He didn't conquer the Romans. He didn't, he didn't take the throne. And so you can't help but walk away a little bit disappointed. Any of you ever been disappointed by God before? Disappointed by the big guy? Daily basis for me. And the primary reason that we get disappointed with God is what? Because God fails to meet our expectations. That's where disappointment comes from. We expected God to do something. We expected God to be something. God didn't do it. So we're disappointed. And while our disappointments with God are very painful, they're also a very important opportunity an opportunity to accept that many of our expectations of God are wrong. They're just wrong. And that's important to understand because once you have learned that many of your expectations of God are wrong, then you can begin the process of accepting God for who God actually is and not whom you have wrongly imagined God to be. Disappointment is an opportunity For you to let go of who you thought Jesus was so that you can learn to embrace who Jesus is. It's a painful opportunity, but it's a very important one. Because as many of us have learned throughout the years, if there is one thing you can always count on Jesus to do for you, it's disappoint you. And that's a good thing because many of our expectations are wrong and they need to be sorted out. And that brings us back to our story in a really important question it makes us ask ourselves. We've established that Jesus has clearly stated his intentions. He's the king, and he is coming for his throne. So here's the question. Did Jesus take the throne? Think about it. Did Jesus take 
throne as he marches in from the Mount of Olives, just like Zechariah said, riding on a donkey, just like Zechariah said, is showered with shouts of Hosanna, just like Psalm 118 said. He cleanses the temple. He's nailed on a cross. He's stuffed in a tomb and then raised three days later. Did Jesus take the throne? Is Jesus right now the king of the universe? Does Jesus right now rule the world? And it's a tricky question, isn't it? Because on the one hand, the answer to it is obviously no. Because just look around you. The world is filled with war, poverty, racism, injustice. Surely these things would not be happening if Jesus ruled the world. But then on the other hand, there's a very real sense in which we have to answer this question, yes. Because scripture could not be more clear that in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus has even now taken the throne. Jesus is right here and right now the king of the universe and the ruler of the world. We'll just look at three texts in the New Testament. The whole New Testament basically says this, but we'll just look at three specific texts. The first one's Ephesians 1, 20 through 28. It says, which God brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. God put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet. When? Not just in the age to come, but right now, right here, right now, all things have been put in subjection under King Jesus' feet. Right, Acts 2, verse 36, this one's pretty straightforward and explicit. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made, not will one day make, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Matthew 24, 30, and then verse 34, this one's very interesting. This is Jesus talking. He says, and the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Verse 34, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. This is often thought to be one of these end time kind of prophecies, right? And yet people miss verse 34, which says what? All this stuff, the Son of Man coming on the clouds, when's it going to go down? In this generation. You will all see this happen. And they did see it happen. Remember Acts 1, Jesus is raised up into the heavens where he's now seated at the right hand of the Father, king of the universe and ruler of the world. And so, yeah, Jesus Christ is right now the ruler of the world. And so what we have here is one of those good old biblical tensions, biblical paradoxes, where in some sense, no, Jesus has not yet taken the throne. But in some deeper sense, yeah, right here, right now, Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is the ruler of the world. And this is such a good reminder of what it means to be a Christian. Because what does it mean to be a Christian? We talk about this in our membership class. Being a Christian does not mean that you say that you believe certain things about Jesus in your heart. You know how abstract all that stuff is? I say that I believe something in my heart. No, being a Christian means you act like Jesus is Lord right here, right now. Because you know that despite appearances, Jesus is Lord right here, right now. And so here's the deal. Many of us are waiting for something to happen that has, in a very real sense, already happened. Because Jesus is Lord, y'all, right here, right now. Not one. Jesus is Lord right here, right now. 
Jesus rules the world right here, right now. And so the issue is not that Jesus has failed to conquer, but rather that we have rejected the manner in which Jesus has already conquered. We're waiting on Jesus to do what? We're waiting on Jesus to conquer others on our behalf. That's the conquering I'm looking for. But instead of conquering others on our behalf, Jesus conquers conquering by exposing the sin and folly of trying to conquer others. And so we're all sitting around mad and disappointed because Jesus hasn't conquered others on our behalf. Meanwhile, Jesus is doing what? He's healing the blind and the lame. He's laughing and playing with children, and he's inviting us to come join him. All that to say Jesus does conquer for us, but he does so by conquering our desire to conquer through his refusal to conquer. Sadly, this can be a very difficult memo to receive, can't it? And so many of us end up doing the conquering for ourselves that Jesus has refused to do for us, but then we'll just put Jesus' name on it. So at a rally a few weeks ago in which he was trying to defend the war he has instigated in Ukraine, uh, Vladimir Putin described it de facto as a religious duty, this war in Ukraine. He even used the Bible to justify it. Now here's the most telling quote from the speech he gave. He said, I recall the words from the Holy Scripture, greater love hath no man than this that a man laid down his life for his friends. Idea being these Russian soldiers are laying their lives down to liberate their Ukrainian friends. And as I think most of us probably now know, Vladimir Putin considers himself a Christian. You know? He was secretly baptized by his mother at a very young age because his father was a staunch atheist. He still wears the little silver necklace cross that she gave him. He's on record saying he thinks young Russians need to get back to church, and he in many ways sees this war as a holy war. He feels that Western civilizations are forsaken Christian values, and somebody's got to stand up and do something about it. And Putin is, of course, a lunatic. You know, he's responsible for the senseless murder of thousands of people, responsible for the murder of children, children murdered in Jesus' name. (laughs) But I don't want to spend too much time judging Vladimir Putin, you know? I mean, he's going to get his, right? Because it's really cheap for us to sit here in Central Texas and do that. And most importantly, it deflects our attention from where it might be more helpfully spent. Namely, y'all, all all of us have this desire to have Jesus conquer others on our behalf. Thankfully, most of us don't have his power. We all do. We have this desire to conquer others and have Jesus do it for us. And then when Jesus refuses to do it for us, what do we do? We just decide that we'll do it on our own behalf (laughs) and we'll slap Jesus' name on it. And this is the enduring challenge of the Sunday before Easter, of Palm Sunday Every single year. Jesus does not need you to conquer for him. Because Jesus has already conquered. Y'all, this is so simple, but I want you to think about how different human history would have turned out if Christians, for God's sake, could understand this. Jesus does not need you to conquer for him. Because Jesus Christ has already conquered. He has conquered our sin. 
He has conquered our shame. He has conquered our fear, our hatred, our anxiety. And he has invited us to act like, because that's what it means to be a Christian. How so? By releasing our desire to conquer others. By making sure that we have made room in our midst, in our life together for allegedly unimportant and inconvenient people. By stopping our banging on our war drums so that we can again hear the sound of the laughter of children. Because that is the sound of the gospel. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for today. We do not deserve to be here. Every breath in and every breath out is grace. We come before you today and we confess that, you know, there's a lot of tough stuff going on in the world right now, although there's always tough stuff going on in the world. There is injustice, poverty, racism, war, you name it, Lord, we've got it. And our own lives are filled with these things too, God. Our own lives are filled with these desires to have you conquer others on our behalf and make them do what we think they should do and give us what we think we deserve. And so, Lord Jesus, we come before you and we just confess that each year we need this humbling reminder on Palm Sunday that you have conquered, but you have conquered through refusing to conquer the way we want you to conquer. You have conquered by conquering our sin and our shame and our hatred, and you have invited us to act like it. And so I pray for all my friends who are gathered here this morning, new friends, old friends, that you would help us to just receive this good news of the gospel a little bit deeper, that you do not need us to conquer for you because you have already conquered everything. We pray that you would help us to act like it, to live like it. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.